0: launch and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. So what's the first brand that had an impact on you?
1: I'll tell you, and not in a good way, it was Disney. (laughs) All these people are big Disney fans. Um, I hated Disney as a kid, um, and I've told this story before, Disney movies are always sad. A parent dies, a kid gets lost, and so my little empathetic heart couldn't take it. So my father tells these horrible stories of taking me to the small local theater and the theater manager having to come in and ask for us to leave because my crying was so loud, I was disrupting the other patients. I felt sort of like this fraud because everybody growing up loved the mouse and all things Disney and all I thought was sad movies.
0: Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today in the CMO podcast is Emily Callahan, the chief marketing and experience officer for ALSAC, the fundraising and awareness organization for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. Most of you know about St. Jude. Their awareness is nearly 100% in the US and it is arguably the strongest healthcare brand and by some measures, the strongest brand in the United States. St. Jude was the brainchild of comedian Danny Thomas who in 1957 founded the organization ALSAC, which stands for American Lebanese Syrian Associated Charities. ALSAC provides the funds to operate St. Jude so that no family ever receives a bill from them. Today, it costs more than a billion dollars a year to run St. Jude, to treat nearly 9,000 children, and to invest in pioneering research in pediatric cancers and other life-threatening illnesses. My guest, Emily, has been CMO at St. Jude for 10 years, and before that, she worked at Susan G. Komen for The Cure. Emily's a morning person, and she's a proud native Oklahoman. This is my conversation with Emily Callahan. Emily, I met you about three years ago after you delivered a keynote speech in Orlando at the ANA Masters of Marketing Conference in front of thousands of people. And I pushed my way through the crowd to find you to tell you it was the highlight of the conference, and it was very, very meaningful. And I told you someday I wanted to get to know you better. So here we are. You're a guest on the CMO podcast, and I and we are going to get to know you better. So welcome.
1: I am beyond honored. Um, Maybe we've been having a mutual admiration society. So obviously, I know you through the ANA, follow your work. It is such a thrill and a highlight to be able to chat with you because I certainly think we share a deep love of purpose and purpose-driven marketing and storytelling. So honor of my day to spend time with you.
0: Well, thank you. And we do indeed. And we also share a love of children, which we'll get into throughout this podcast. I have to start this though with your morning routine. (laughs) So I would like you to share with our guests, our listeners, this routine and, and just tell us what happens. What's your morning like?
1: Uh, Oh, I guess I have a reputation for this. So I'm an early riser. I usually get up pretty early, about five. And in total truth, the first thing I do before my eyes open is I say a little prayer or reflection of gratitude. Given the work that I do and the place that I work, I don't take a day for granted, nor do I take my health for granted. And then I've learned along the way um, that I need to take care of myself first before I can help and serve others. I vividly remember being on a flight right after my daughter was born, and the flight attendant given the whole spiel about put your oxygen mask on first before you can help others. And as a new mother, I thought that was the stupidest, stupidest piece of advice I had ever heard. Like I couldn't fathom until my brain kicked in and overrode my heart and realized it makes total sense. You have to take care of others before you can take care of yourself. So I get up, I read um, some sort of professional personal development um, a little bit of prayer and meditation. I look through the morning news. I have sort of a voracious read of what's going on in the world. And then I work out and move my body. So that's sort of my recipe for success to prepare me for whatever is thrown at me for the rest of the day.
0: So what is your meditation routine? Is it, uh, do you focus on something or do you repeat something or do you visualize something?
1: That's a great question. It depends. Um, I have a couple of devotional books that I really like, um, and it's uncanny how many times I open those up, and a lot of them are a date calendar-based one, and whatever those words are are exactly what I needed to hear that day. They're usually a reminder to something that I might have been worried about, a reminder that there's something bigger than control or that i got to trust or you need to breathe. Um, so they, they vary, um, there's a number of different things I sort of subscribe to, too, that I read throughout the day, different thoughts. One comes from an employee of ours, a colleague of mine, a couple come from outside, but I try to really seek out fresh voices that are positive and affirming, but also are really focused on what matters in, in life.
0: We're going to get to your job in a moment, but I, but I have to get you to talk about your funeral principle. Oh, I want you to talk about it and the origin of it.
1: Yeah, I I should probably give some context to why I live my life by the funeral principle. Um, So growing up, my father started his career out of college as a funeral home director. And my mother, um, for many years, was an ER nurse. So um, pain and suffering and death were things I was a acquainted with at a pretty young age. Um, and my parents often taught me that the two most important times you can be there for people is when they come into the world and when they leave it. So, um, or maybe I'm a little weird Wednesday Adams. I don't know. Um, so my funeral principle came about when I, um, I call it my um, quarter life crisis early on in my career. I was working at Edelman at the time, which is nothing to say against Edelman. It was a fantastic opportunity and they gave me so many amazing opportunities to grow and learn. um, but it was a day at work, and I was young, and it was chaotic, and my husband, we've been married for a long time, got married young, called me, and I don't remember what he said, but I do remember at the end of that call, he said, I don't think I want to call and talk to you anymore at work. And I'm sure I had some choice words to say about that, <clears throat> but he said, I just, I don't, I don't like who you've become. And it kind of gave me a stock and a pause to look around and think, well, I don't like necessarily how I've become either. Um, and, and it wasn't exactly in that moment, sort of an evolution over time, as I looked around and realized how I was uh, spending my life priorities, what I was focused on, what I was worried about, what was stressing me out. And I realized it wasn't how I wanted to live. And so um, I vowed to... You, you
0: were only in your 20s there, Emily, right?
1: It's in my 20s. Yeah. and. Um, I think it was just the culmination of a lot of purpose soul searching that I was actually doing. And so my, what that led to was a promise to myself. I decided I would live my life by my funeral principle, which is this. At my funeral one day, who knows when that will be, and there don't have to be a lot of people there, but I want those that were there to say that I was an amazing partner and wife, mother, friend. Um, that I made a difference in the world and over the years I've added and that I had fun while doing it. And all of that is why serving a God and a higher purpose. And it wasn't too long after I decided to live that way that I actually got a call to go work in nonprofit that I had never thought about and knew nothing about as a career choice. And if I was really being honest, probably didn't think so highly of as a career choice. And it turned out to be the, the greatest professional blessing of my life. So that's my funeral principle that I try to live by I don't get it all right, my friends. And there's plenty of days I have to check and balance because you can't be all those roles great at the same time. But but more than once, it's allowed me to course correct my mistake and reorder my life to the priorities that I think help me be the best human I can be and certainly the best professional I can be.
0: You know, you, you and I both believe in organizations having a purpose. And of course, individuals have to also have a purpose, whether it's as, as explicit as yours. It's not always the case. But when the personal purpose and the organizational purpose are in harmony. Amazing things happen. So I'd like you to go a little bit deeper on the personal purpose that you just ran through very quickly, that you, its origin was in your 20s. Has it changed? And how do you manage the various roles in that purpose?
1: Um, it's a great question to ask me if it's changed. It's not. It's only, my resolve to try to live by it is only deepened. Um, as I continue to do the work at St. Jude, as I grow in the years of my marriage, as my kids get older and as my family's faced some pretty tough tragedies in the last couple of years, um, my family and I talk openly about this. I lost my only brother um, to suicide. So that principle and ordering of my life to remind myself to serve a higher purpose first and and some of that is comforting. It lets you actually give up some control. You, you you feel led by something bigger than yourself. So it often reorders the day and then to do what I can to take care of myself. We've talked about that morning routine. So focus on my purpose, then be a great partner. And that takes work. Whoever says to you, marriage is great and easy and fun and wonderful all the time. It's a total liar. Um, but man, is that work worth it? I have an incredible partner. We've been married since we were in our early twenties and, uh, we've made some awful mistakes together and we've learned a lot together. <clears throat> and then a mother is, a, is in an unbelievable role, one of the greatest gifts of my lifetime. I, I often can't believe that these two amazing people are, are mine to, to live with and learn from and teach. And then the professional part, right? I, I feel like I'm living the dream that I have found this unbelievable place to work that's so purpose-centered, that's at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, the mission of that, and then working for ALSAC to fuel that to take care of children and not just any kid, like the most vulnerable, the kids that need us most, but to be able to touch every facet of marketing and to operate like a big business. So, I mean, I get to do all the same things that big businesses do and sometimes more fun and sometimes cooler. And sometimes with all those big businesses, it's just a dream come true. So it's amazing that the way I wanted to live my life, I'm also able to do professionally. So I don't feel like I have to compartmentalize. If anything, I've had to really learn to integrate my life um because i don't believe in any such thing as balance
0: you don't you believe in integration versus balance say more
1: i cannot stand the phrase work life balance um i think balance by definition implies equal and it's impossible for all those things to be equal and i think what led to that early midlife crisis was a belief that those things could be equal and i learned really quickly and painfully the consequences of when you try to have balance and the expectation of balance, somebody always feels like they're losing out. Either I felt guilty that I wasn't doing enough at work or I wasn't getting ahead. Clearly, in that case, my husband, we, we didn't have children for a long time, um, felt like he wasn't a priority. I don't know that I was making myself a priority. So this idea of work-life integration, particularly with jobs like this, who knows, right? I mean, I'm on call 24-7-365, and so if I was angry every time the phone interrupted a personal time... Um, I would live a pretty miserable life. And and really for me, Jen, the coolest thing is that I don't just work for this mission. My family is a part of this mission. My children are growing up being extremely empathetic and wise human beings because they love the ALSAC St. Jude mission as much as I do. They know patience. They are wise beyond their years. It's working here has shaped who they are too and who my family is and how my parents think and believe and serve, they're incredible examples of service and we can talk about them later because they're pretty remarkable.
0: We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. I want to shift now to, to talk about St. Jude and ALSAC a bit. And I've done about 120 interviews for this podcast series. So you're about the 120th person I've talked to. And I've talked to the most amazing brands and leaders in the world, all right? Just go through them, JP Morgan Chase, P&G, Target, Salesforce, Adobe. And your institution or your brand, if you will, is arguably the strongest. And and here's some data. You know this better than me. Top loved brand seven years in a row. Top brand for quality and trust in a 2000 brand survey. Top place to work in multiple surveys. Massive results in fundraising. Nearly 100% awareness. This amazing goal that no child will ever die from cancer. And as you're working toward that goal and doing this research, you're taking care of these precious children and their families and your team. So Emily, tell us, tell our listeners what they can learn. You've been CMO 10 years. What can they, we learn from building what is seen by so many people as the strongest institution that they have come across? <laughs>
1: I'm almost teary when you recap that and that's not, um,
0: it's all data. I mean, this isn't my opinion.
1: It is data. And, um, I think the part that, that I would say is I, I didn't build that. We as a collection of millions of people around the world built that. And that's my favorite aspect of doing this job. So ALSAC is the fundraising and awareness organization for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. I figure I better explain that because we really, we exist for no other reason than to raise the funds and create the awareness for St. Jude. And we're now America's largest healthcare charity. And to your point, all these fantastic successes, we, we market St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And it was not an iconic brand when I started, but we had an intentional strategy. And I've shared this often to, to make it be a movement To inspire millions of people, including our employees, who are all held accountable to our brand performance every year on their employee reviews, the same as I am as the CMO, the same as the CEO, doesn't matter. We're all held accountable. But what you can see now, and the reason why I think the brand is where it is, is because... It's the brand of our patients and families who tell their stories. It's the brand of 11 million active donors who believe, and by the way, that's 11 million active donors from all walks of life and background, from the tiniest little you know, preschoolers raising money to, to those leaving a gift at their ultimate end of their life, 150 plus countries, because I believe this brand unifies us all around this idea to your point that Danny Thomas, our founder, said no child should die in the dawn of life. Maybe more modern day way to say it is that every child should have a chance to grow up and thrive. That's something that I think unifies us all. And that's the power, I believe, behind the brand. And then, P.S., all those great people you've mentioned, so many of them are advisors, friends, partners, partners. That's the coolest thing about working for this brand is they all help and support us. So it's like I get a masterclass in marketing all the time. And when I don't know what to do, I can pick up the phone and call any one of them and they'll give me great advice.
0: So you talk about everyone being accountable for this brand, this institution. What does that look like for your people? How, how, how are they held accountable? I hate to use those words. They sound very harsh. But, you know, how are they responsible and rewarded for moving the brand forward?
1: The really cool thing about accountability is you, and we often think about a word accountability, right, as the negative consequences. But in this case, I think about it as an awesome opportunity and responsibility. So when I started 10 years ago, which is a whole other thing, I can't believe it's been 10 years since most CMOs don't stay in jobs that long, um, we decided as a way to really have a collaborative, strategic, integrative, innovative culture to have all of our employees have two shared goals on their annual performance reviews. So literally everyone who works at ALSAC, from the receptionist to um, our mailroom crew to the CEO, have two shared goals in their performance review. Everyone is responsible for how efficiently and effectively we raise the funds necessary to support St. Jude, and the overwhelming majority, more than 80% of the funds to operate St. Jude have to be raised from the public. And then everyone is accountable for the strength of our brand and how we protect it. So we do a we do an annual brand survey. There's a ton of data that goes into that. We measure ourselves against our sibling charities, which is what we call them. They're not competitors because their missions matter. But there's data that backs it up. So we get a score, and then our employees are held accountable to how they enhance that. And they also know that every single one of them has the power to harm that if they don't act as brand stewards. So it's really been amazing to... See our team members all across the country embrace this and really become ambassadors and stewards of the brand. They think like CMOs, which is a ton of fun to see.
0: You've been chief marketing and experience officer, so you have a slightly different title than most people. And you've been in that position 10 years, which we've said. Could you illustrate for us, or articulate, or elucidate the principles through which you manage this brand? your marketing principles, if you will. If you were to write the book about the story of St. Jude, what would be the chapter titles?
1: First would be mission comes first. We talk about this a lot at our organization. First, we serve the mission. Um, The shorthand, the tagline for our mission is finding cures, saving children. But we put that first and foremost, and it comes out daily in phrases like, well, it's for the kids or what would be best. So, the first is mission first. The second um, is a reminder that all we have is our reputation. We don't sell a product where one physical hospital in Memphis, Tennessee that takes care of kids all across the world, and those families come to us knowing that no family's ever going to receive a bill from St. Jude. We pay for their treatment and their travel and their housing and their food, and, and the reason is the most important because we believe all a family should worry about is helping their child live. So that, that second part of reputation and stewardship and trust, the third is, is trust. You know, people have a choice when they give to charity. You don't have to give to charity. You choose to give to charity. And so we don't literally operate without the support of the public. As I mentioned, nearly 80% of the money to operate St. Jude and our operating budget's over a billion dollars has to be raised every year. So I mentioned we have 11 million active donors. Our average donation is in the $40 range. That's a lot of people coming together to sacrifice. So we take trust really seriously. And then the last is we were built by visionaries and innovators and creatives. Like If you know anything about our founding story, we decided to build a children's cancer research institution in the segregated South, When children's cancer was a death sentence, our first medical director was told he was committing career suicide to come to this startup hospital founded by an entertainer with a 10th grade education. Because at the time when he did rounds and they went to the rooms of the children with cancer, he was told, don't go in there. Just let those children die in peace. Children want to die in peace. Children want to live. So we take that same spirit of innovation and vision and creativity. When people say it's impossible, we say, "Uh uh-uh. Nope, let's do the impossible. Let's make it possible. So it's also a place where we innovate and grow and think constantly about what we can do to advance the mission, raise more funds, make more discoveries, help more families. So it's, this is not a place where you come to to relax and do nonprofit work as people often think. We've got to be best in class in business and creativity and innovation and marketing.
0: This origin story is so amazing. C- can you speak a little bit more about? How you, 63 years later, how you keep that spirit always at the forefront. What sorts of things do you do to keep that, what you just spoke about, thriving and alive every day? Gosh.
1: One of the most powerful things to me about coming to our campus in Memphis is coming to our pavilion. It's our own sort of little museum in history, but that's not really so much about what it is. You could P&G, right? You have a great sort of cool history museum you can go yeah. in and learn. What's striking about the campus is that Danny Thomas, the founder, and his wife, Rosemarie, are buried there. So here's Danny Thomas, who starred St. Jude, and I'm, ha- and I'm happy to tell you the story if you don't know the story about Danny Thomas. Just the quick version was he was um, not an entertainer at the time. <laughs> he was a struggling actor trying to find his way in life and he grew up poor and he was broke and his wife had just given birth to what we all know now as Marlo Thomas, the unbelievable, amazing Marlo Thomas. And he didn't have enough money to pay the hospital bill. So he went into a church and he prays to St. Jude Thaddeus, the patron saint of hopeless causes and says, man, help me find my way in life and I'll build you a shrine. No judgment to how many of us have prayed some sort of desperation prayer in our lives. And so the story goes, he throws his last seven bucks on the offering plate. And the next day, gets a job as a singing toothbrush on the radio, making $70, more money than he's ever made. Because really what he was saying in that prayer was, hey, should I pursue my passion? Should I go after my purpose? Or so should I get a a job just to make money? And he saw that answer as divine, yes, follow your purpose. And it was because he went on to have this great success as an entertainer that he maybe had the courage and the passion to say, okay, I want to make good on that promise. I want to fulfill my purpose. And it was his spiritual mentor, a guy by the name of Cardinal Stritch, who had served in Memphis in a, in a segregated, poor city at the time, who said, there's great medical institutions on coast. Let's put this thing in Memphis. And what I love most about Danny Thomas, and this spirit is still there, hopefully you heard it in my answer of seeking help from others, was Danny knew what he didn't know. So he got together thinkers and dreamers and business folks and pulled all the best minds together to create this amazing place, and then he put it in the segregated South, built by a Black architect, Paul Williams. And if you know anything about Paul's stories, Paul's had to learn to write upside and draw upside down because at the time he couldn't sit next to his clients who were fine to pay for his work but wouldn't sit next to him as a Black man. That's who was the architect of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And all these other incredible, primarily, women and men of Danny's shared Arabic heritage, Danny was Lebanese, all coming together and saying, we're going to do the impossible. And the why was purpose, to say thank you to God and the United States of America for giving their families, their immigrant families, a chance to come here and make a life. So he decided to put a children's cancer research hospital in the segregated South where people of all backgrounds and colors would come together, serve together, doctors, scientists, patients, families, and this stupid, really, business model where no one would pay. <laughs> and people thought he was crazy. And then look forward to where we are now, treating patients from all over the world. We've taken the overall childhood cancer survival rate from 20% when we opened our doors, a death sentence, to more than 80%. Now we're taking it globally. Fundraising has grown. We've had 43 consecutive quarters of growth because this has become a movement that the people believe in. To me, it's the perfect story for the world we're living in now when we deal with all these issues of racial injustice and inequality and others. This is just the most amazing, immigrant, inclusive, trend-setting, visionary story that I think the world needs more of.
0: Wow. Um, How many people work there now?
1: (laughs) On the ALSAC side, we're about 1,400 people who focus on the fundraising and the marketing and the operations and then there's about 5,000 that work at St. Jude and the research and the treatment side and then the operations.
0: Well, Danny would be very proud.
1: We, th- we often ask ourselves, and it's fun, you know, we still get the, the families incredibly involved, his children and his grandchildren. So it's really cool to see them marvel or, you know, I work for a CEO that grew up with Danny that knows him to think, well, what would he think about now? Would he be proud of us? And so often I know I and others stand in front of that spot where he's buried. And to me, to finish that story out, the most telling thing is that here was a humanitarian and he won all these accolades and awards and this entertainer, and he wanted one thing on his tombstone. It simply says founder because this is how he fulfilled his life's purpose is ALSAC and St. Jude Children's Research Hospital.
0: Purpose is so endemic to who you are and has always have been and your personal purpose is in harmony with your organization's purpose, what could the for-profits who are listening to us right now learn from you, your team, your institution about purpose? And you've been on the for-profit side long ago. You've been on the nonprofit for most of your career, but we talk about purpose a lot in this podcast. Some people struggle with it. Some get it. Those who get it and bring it to life, see amazing results. What, what's your advice to them? I'm sure you're asked, but I'd love you to share that with our listeners.
1: I love this question, um, and I'm really passionate about the answer, so I'll try not to be too excited in it. The the one thing, and, and I spend a lot of time with my, my CEO, who's my boss and mentor, Rick Shadiak. We talk a lot about this. He's written about it. I'd love for you all to meet Purpose is not something just about feeling good or doing nice in the world. And so it's phenomenal to see this movement, watch the business roundtable go after it. And I will say it adds meaning to work. And all of us spend an extraordinary time in our lives working. But the thing I want the for-profit world to know about, and this lines up with most of those values, is exactly what you said, the results. It is proven over and over again with data. And we've got the case studies to prove it. And I'm happy to tell you these stories that I believe having a purpose-driven organization and purpose-driven work does three powerful things. It drives sales or revenue, whichever way you want to calculate that. And we can show that again and again, and we can talk about the why. It drives recruitment, particularly of, for a long time, it was next generation, right? We talked about younger audiences wanting purpose, but all this multi-part crisis of the past year have shown us that all ages and generations want purpose. So it drives recruitment of employees and it drives retention. People don't just want to work for a paycheck. They, it's kind of like I think about myself as that 20-year-old kid evaluating, like, if I'm going to do all this stuff, or I'm going to work twice as hard, or I'm going to have a job in accounting, or I'm going to have a job in marketing, I want it to matter. So I think we often overlook and people take for granted and don't realize the, the revenue recruitment and retention that comes from having purpose infused and at the forefront of your work. Not to mention it's what audiences are demanding these days. So if you're behind on that, better get on board because your consumers of today and tomorrow are going to expect it and demand it.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be the only way to do business. It's those who do it better and more authentically and with every employee involved are the ones that will win. And you're a great example of that.
1: Authenticity is the key. I'm so glad you used that word. There's nothing worse than it being fake.
0: You're such a leading institution in so many ways. How do, you, how do you benchmark? Who do you look to for inspiration? How do you stretch your thinking? I think it's a common problem for market leaders, right? And you are a market leader. So how do you ensure that you're always stretching, learning, uh, keeping your eyes wide open, your ears wide open? Who do you talk to? Who do you listen to? Who do you read about? Tell us a bit about that.
1: I love this question and I'm glad you asked me earlier about kind of how we think um, when the stakes are as high as the stakes are with our mission, you can't afford to rest on your laurels. You have to push and drive. And in fact, I spent this morning working with our chief strategy officer on the first draft of our next three-year strategic plan. So as leaders, and our CEO expects us of us and demands, we read and study and ask and collaborate voraciously. So I'll tell you, I mean, there's some amazing people in our industry, of course, but we look outside of the nonprofit industry a lot and increasingly more so than ever before. Um, and part of it's because our industry is is so hurting right now, right? I mean, this crisis has put a ton of pressure on, on nonprofits who actually employ one in 12 people. So I also want more people to consider careers in nonprofit marketing But we're so fortunate. We have all these amazing corporate partners. So we've been able to, and and the neat thing is when you have a brand and a cause like mine is they, they open the doors, they welcome you in. So we've been able to sit and we do regularly. I've had in the last week, you know, from TikTok to Amazon, to Google, to Facebook, Domino's, Target. These are these are not just people we read about. They've invited us to sit down and learn. They invest in coming to our campus and sitting down and, and helping us tackle business problems. We can call them. We can. They sit on advisory councils for us. And and, and I remember actually asking, I I know you know Russell Wiener, who was the longtime CMO for Dominos and now their are president. He's such an amazing guy. He's part of our professional advisory board. So I was like, Russell, why do you do this? Like, I'm so grateful. And he's, I hope he's not going to kill me for this quote, but he said it publicly. He said, look, I spent my career selling cigarettes. I think he was Philip Morris, soda, Pepsi, and now pizza at Domino's. So basically helping St. Jude's like my ticket into heaven. (laughs) I love it. And he says it jokingly, but that's an yeah. unbelievable example of a company with purpose, right? I mean, global yeah. sales, they're booming. They just made a third commitment to us a $100 million commitment to actually create the Domino's Village, the new patient housing facility on our campus. Every one of their executives from Rich Allison, the CEO on down, are invested in the business. Their employees and franchisees are deeply involved. They can tell you what it does to drive revenue, recruitment, and retention. So we learn from all the best that we can, and we constantly push and challenge ourselves with with stretch goals. Even this week, we learned a lot about live streams and YouTube stars and Next Generation folks. We had an incredible live stream to benefit St. Jude for Giving Tuesday with Matt Pat. Um, a great pair of YouTube influencers and a ton of other YouTube content that was supposed to raise a million. And because of amazing people all across the world, it raised 3 million in eight hours.
0: Unbelievable. Congratulations.
1: Congratulations to them. We're, we're the yeah. recipients and the partners. It was amazing to yeah. watch marketing and action.
0: What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half? story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. So let's talk about your job. CMO and Chief Experience Officer, 10 years in the job, as you said, way longer, about three times the normal tenure. Could you tell us What you do and how that has changed since you stepped into this institution, this wonderful place 10 years ago.
1: So I was the first ever um, chief marketing officer for the organization. Um, When I started with the organization 10 years ago, I was a year behind our our current CEO. So we've been together for 10 years in the roles. It was a a strong nonprofit, raising about $600 But it was really focused on fundraising and everything else was called other support. And so I give kudos and credit to Rick Shadiak, who said, no, no, if we're going to be a fundraising and awareness, we need to build upon this amazing communications infrastructure that was there, but build a world-class marketing institution. And I, I vividly remember our interviews where he and I said, well, why not? Why can't we be an iconic brand and the same level that all those amazing ones that the 120 or 40 you said that have come before me? So at the time, it was actually building a brand culture getting people to understand what that meant and shaking it up internally and building that infrastructure of research. We started with research. Um, the research we did before was just to tell us what we wanted to hear. And so we really had to build our own proprietary brand scorecard and research to ask ourselves the tough questions. And we got some tough answers back in the beginning. We were, we were not acting in world-class even though people had great uh, intentions. You, you heard me give the speech at ANA, but we call it lovingly the dog's breakfast. We were all over the place. Um, We weren't listening to our audiences. We were not showing up in market in a consistent and powerful way. And then that really critical point was we had to make everybody be involved and accountable for driving the change. Um, And so now, fast forward, we have this officially an iconic brand by measures of those scorecards in the same way that any brand would measure. All of our employees are accountable. Data drives our decisions. And... And we've been able to build this momentum around our brand. And the really cool thing is that our supporters have taken this brand and made it their own. I always know you're getting key messages right when people are spitting them back without ever having any training from you. And so now my job has really shifted and I spend most of my time thinking about how we grow. So most of my time is spent not so much in building and execution, but in strategy. How do we really help the next generation of supporters fall in love with this mission? How does our mission continue to extend globally? You know, when you're on YouTube and Twitch and Strava and others, you're automatically global in nature. So how do we grow that? How do we raise more money? How do we deepen partnerships? How do we really make sure that this organization continues to grow and thrive? And I spent a lot of time thinking about um, succession and how to set up the next generations to come and do this job and quite frankly, do it better than I probably ever did or will.
0: But what are the most important marketing capabilities that you're building right now? They're certainly different from what they were 10 years ago. But if you had to say, what are the core capabilities that will help us do all these things you just talked about? Get bigger, get better, get more important to more people keep the iconic brand evolving. So so what what would be those really, really, really must-have capabilities?
1: The the first I'll say, and we've been intentional in this language, is being audience-led. Others call it customer-obsessed, supporter-obsessed, whatever word you want to use, um, or customer-responsive. We want to be audience-led. So data, and everybody talks about this, but not just overwhelming data. We don't know data and insights about those audiences. So we understand what motivates them to support us. Cause again, supporting us is a choice. It's not a have to do right. Um, what motivates them understanding their why, and then meeting them where they are and making it really easy, fun, engaging, and meaningful to choose to support us in whichever way they do. So when we think about the capabilities, it's having this, it's really building those, those audience insights. It's a ton of data and technology that we can really use to listen and understand. It's a ton of market and research. So, so data and tech really drive that. And then the next, I think, is really meeting them where they are and stretching ourselves to be on new fundraising platforms. I mean, we, we laugh about this, but I mean, two years ago, nobody was fundraising on Facebook, and now we've raised over $100 million from people just choosing to do birthday fundraisers, right? Strava wasn't a thing. And now you can do fitness whenever and wherever to benefit us. Twitch and gaming or YouTube. So, so meeting people where they are in those next generation platforms and, and finding a way to connect meaningful, meaningful for them, because many of those need a purpose aspect to them as well, in my opinion, um, is really critical for us. And then I also think just sort of authentically engaging that next generation of of influencers, celebrities, supporters, um, that's been critical because those are all people who can add credibility to the why behind our mission. Our focus varies to us. And then the other really fun one was, as much as I hate it, right, the media world has been so disrupted. Um, A couple of years ago, we started our own media publishing platform. And so as we move into our own podcasts and web content and magazine and others, content at scale has become critical for us. Um, So that's another really big area that will continue to grow and accelerate. Um, Again, when all you have is reputation, you become a really good storyteller. And and my friend, the stories that come out of St. Jude, you couldn't make them up if you tried.
0: You're on the board of the ANA with other top CMOs from around the world. How is your job the same or different from theirs?
1: (laughs) I love this question. because it's humbling. I think there's two of us on the A board that come from the the nonprofit space. And so um I'd be lying, and I've told Bob this before and no, others. I there's a little imposter syndrome to start because
0: Bob's a CEO. Yeah, Bob's
1: yeah. CEO and A. Yeah. Right. Because we're I I think it's the same in that there's not a facet of marketing that we don't touch. We're doing all the same things that they do, albeit with much smaller budgets. Um And so I think it's the same um, and that we're touching all these facets, but it's different. And that if I was really being blunt, I have to be that much better than them. I don't have the same dollars. I don't have the same resources. Our content and creative has to break through. We have to be creative and innovative to get people's attention. We have to inspire people to part With their hard-earned dollars and choose to give when there's no have to, Um, you know. So it's been it's been fun to be at the table, and man, have I learned a ton. Um, I'm thankful that one Bob gave the opportunity, but I'm thankful for people like Rick Gomez at Target. Rick has been a fantastic champion for me, and has in this case suggests that I think my name, same with the Marketing Fifty, like put me in rooms, um, and that's also because Target's been a partner for a long time, and I think I think Target. The Target House here, one of our housing facilities, they know the power of purpose. And so I think inviting, you know, purpose-led leaders and naturally inherent purpose-driven, purpose-driven nonprofits to the, to the table is hopefully, I hope, I hope I've been able to add some value in return and being at those tables. I've certainly learned a ton. It's to that point of how do we challenge ourselves and push? I overflow with data when I get back home and bring it straight in and let that form, inform our strategies for growth.
0: I wanna talk a bit, a bit more about leadership. We've already gone there several times in this podcast, but I wanna ask you over these 10 years, how are you, Emily, a different leader?
1: I would hope my people would say, <clears throat> and certainly this last year has taught me, um, that I've learned to lead even more with vulnerability, which I believe is a really important quality in, in leaders. Um, so I hope I've become a lot more vulnerable sort of personally and sharing, but also vulnerable and admitting what I don't know and, and really reflecting to my people a hunger and a thirst for knowledge and growth and innovation. Um, so that vulnerability is not just the one we always think about, which is being emotionally raw or scary, right? And, and, and be more comfortable even in forums like this, talking about some of this stuff. Um, I would hope that I've become even more visionary, I've spent a lot more time thinking about the future, talking about the future, and inspiring and helping others see their pathway to the future. Um, I've become a lot more of a, of a coach, I think. Um, and part of that's just because I'm surrounded by some of those talented people on the planet. They, I intentionally try to hire people. And everybody says this, but not everybody does. I intentionally try to hire people who are smarter than me that could do my job Many of my direct reports are many years my senior came out of these other industries, and it's amazing to get to learn from them, to have a trusted circle of advisors. Um, and I feel this will sound crazy, <clears throat> and maybe this comes with confidence, maybe this comes from knowing a job. I feel a lot more creative and innovative than I ever have before. Um um, it, it feels like I'm firing on all cylinders. My teams, we, we have this momentum going right now of all this great stuff that, you know, when you're building stuff, it's so hard and you finally start to have it all click into place and you can feel it going and you know there's something magical in it. And now your job becomes to how to build upon that, how to create that for the future. And so one of the things I'm afraid some of my colleagues miss by moving around too quickly is this magic that happens when you start to hit your stride. And you can start to see a future even beyond you or in the job, um, which is pretty powerful.
0: So you're saying you're more creative and innovative right now, and you've been 10 years in the job. Do you? Let's go a little bit deeper into that. Is it about the confidence, the knowledge, the uh, trust in your team, your boss? I mean, what is it? Because others would, confidence in CMOs is a big issue. There's some massive Deloitte research on that. There, there's there's a lack of confidence among many of your peers. So what is it about, about how you're feeling right now about your creativity, and your innovation, and your confidence? I'd like you to delve into that a bit more.
1: One of the things I can't take for granted, and not everyone has it, is the support infrastructure that I have. I... I work for and I've worked for some great people, so I hesitate because they'll listen and hear this. But right now I, I work for the best boss I've ever had in my career. You know, he took a chance on me. He hired me at a pretty young age. He hired me at 32 <laughs> to be the organization's first ever CMO. Now, and I'll say some of that was I've been working since I was 16. and There's a whole other story behind that. Um, but he's believed in me from day one and not just believed in me. He's invested in me. He's allowed me to sit right alongside him and learn and grow. You know, he gives me regular feedback in a constructive way. You know, when somebody cares enough to give you feedback, that's a gift. And when it's given with the belief to make you better, hey, you can do, let me tell you the truth, even when it's hard, right? He's, he's given me some hard feedback and very necessary. So I don't have to take for granted that some of it's, I come from an extremely um, supportive network. I have great board members who believe in me and give me feedback. Part of it's the team I get to work with. They're smart. They're creative. They're innovative. They they keep me on my toes in my A-game. I mean, I feel like I have to wake up and bring it every day. We have a philosophy at ALSAC that you show up every day to earn your job. It's not a right or given to you. And then, yeah, some of it is just when you're in the mix and you know, but it's also there's this magic power for me that unlocked. You know, we were striving for so long to try to be an iconic brand, and now we are one. Well, that just meant the stakes got raised even higher. So now we have to grow as an iconic brand. We've got to act like a challenger brand in this leadership position. We've got to act more like big business and for-profit. So there's fun in that. It felt like my job at that 10-year mark got to be reinvented almost into a new job all over again. And, you know, some of it comes with... I don't know what I don't know, and I don't know a lot, but man, I'm going to have some fun figuring it out and discovering it. I'm sure I'll make some mistakes along the way, but I'm going to learn a ton, and we're going to do great things because we're guided always by that same mission that gets us out of bed every day, which is to go take care of more children around the world. And We got a lot of work to do. So even on the days when I don't feel like it, I realize I don't really have anything to complain about, I don't have anything to worry about, and this mission de- demands my best.
0: I want to move to the lightning round because I want to ask some really interesting random questions of you, but this is such a good discussion, Emily. Um, I thank you for it, but let's go go into the lightning round. You're an Oklahoman. You were born and raised in Oklahoma, so tell me what influence that had on you.
1: Oh, well, the funny part is everyone says I talk like I swallowed a tornado, so maybe there was that from Oklahoma. (laughs) I don't think so. I've practiced being a lot slower, my friend. I th- almost gave you that answer has change Um coming from Oklahoma, there's an authenticity and a realness and an everydayness and a bit of a struggle um, and a, a, a pioneering spirit that comes out of that. I'm really proud to to be from there and how it's shaped me to come from small town America, to have incredible servant heart parents, um, and to to have real, close, connected extended family. I feel like my, the, the neighbors around the street were just as much my mother and raising me as everybody else was too. So, um, I, am glad that I came from the heart of the country.
0: My wife and daughter took uh, route 66 drive across the country. And my daughter's favorite state was Oklahoma. Why? The stories, the people what they talked about when they stopped, she just thought they were real, natural, honest, a little quirky.
1: I feel very seen right now. I would I would happily be described by all those words. Um, and I feel the same.
0: So what are you reading these days or listening to or watching for inspiration or education or whatever?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I'm trying to think. These are always the profound ones. And I think about the book that's sitting on my desk. I'll try to say it this way. I make a point, <clears throat> and I can give suggestions, but... Every day I read a mix and cultivation of news sources, traditional news, social media, you know, your daily skim sort of feeds. Um, Every week I try to listen to some sort of a podcast. Some are yours um, and things that are professional in nature. And some are just storytelling because if our job is to be storytellers, we've got to hone um, our craft. So there's been some pretty phenomenal ones. A lot of my focus lately has been in the DE&I space listening and learning and understanding those voices. It's been a focus of my husband and I when we've been on journeys together. It's also just passion point when you come from Memphis, Tennessee, such this remarkable city. Um, I actually like watching some of the YouTube stuff with my kids because it tells me next generation. So Mark Roper was on the live stream this week, and my eight-year-old son thinks it's all because of him because he introduced me to Mark, and that's only because Mark actually did a world record event with Fletcher, one of our St. Jude patients. And then people can say what they say about social media, but I try to make a point every day to spend a little bit of time on social media um, just because I want to know what people are thinking and talking about. And I try really hard to have pretty diverse feeds because I want to know what all spectrums of people think about. And then, man, I love some good escapism content. So I've enjoyed the heck out of um, Yellowstone was one that I couldn't get enough of.
0: Yeah, super. So who is the greatest inspiration in your life?
1: I have such a hard time answering this question. I gave you three already who really shape a lot. Actually, I gave you four <clears throat> because I gave you my immediate family, I gave you my boss. Um, but I'll answer it this way because we're talking in the professional perspective. The, the opportunity to be around the patients and families of St. Jude has been utterly life-changing. Um, I've cried more tears in 10 years than I ever thought was possible. And if I never attended another child's funeral again, I would be okay. But those little ones in particular have taught me a whole lot about humanity. They are wise beyond their years. They are brave. They are insightful. And, and if, you, if you know this phrase, it'll make sense, but I often feel like working in this job is a glimpse beyond the veil. It's to something that's otherworldly. So I've learned probably the most from what the little ones and their stories have had to teach. And I could tell you many of them by name.
0: Who would you like to hear on the CMO podcast, Emily? You have a high, high bar, but who would be really helpful and inspiring for you?
1: I'd you something I think is interesting. That we're not talking enough about, and this is part of my passion projects. There's a guy named David French here in Memphis, who is the um, president and chief marketing officer for the Memphis brand. So we talk a lot about brands for companies, brands for organizations. I don't know how much city and place branding we talk about, but that's actually an effort that my CEO, along with Mike Glenn, who was the longtime head of marketing at FedEx, started. So it's it is a five hundred one c three, but it is focused on mm-hmm. growing the brand Memphis to be an iconic brand, and that the ability to sit at the table and and co chair that work has been transformative because we don't think enough about how passionately people feel about cities and places and how they're shaped by history, how they shape tourism and business and civic pride. And I think there's a lot to that. And if we see this whole, you know, people wrestling with where they want to live and out migrations, I think there's going to be a whole lot more that's involved in our life choices about where we choose to live on cities. So I think it'd be fascinating to start talking about some place branding, some non-traditional sort of stuff.
0: That's a great idea. Emily, this has been such an amazing discussion. You know, one tradition we have at Christmas time, and for our listeners, there's beautiful Christmas decorations behind Emily as we speak today. But one tradition we have is we give our children money to charities that they designate. So it makes them think about that. So um, I want to give this this year to St. Jude. So I'm going to have, uh, and I, I urge my listeners to do the same. If you've been uh, inspired by this discussion, please help. Uh, it is an amazing place. I've run into your institution several times in my life. And, uh, and it, is, uh, it is just a powerful good force in the world. So thank you for all you do. Uh, have a wonderful holiday season. And thank you for this amazing discussion.
1: Thank you for being a supporter and encouraging others. I promise when you give, you make the difference in the lives of children all over the world. Thank you.
0: That was my conversation with Emily Callahan. I felt very moved by this conversation. I actually feel a bit depleted after the conversation. She, her, her institution is making such a difference in this world. It is such a purposeful place. She is such a purposeful leader. No matter what your job is, where you work, what company, there was so much in this conversation about how to lead with purpose, how to discover your own purpose and how to lead an organization to a higher level of purpose and performance. There were so many takeaways on purpose in this podcast. The first one is how every employee is measured. It's in their performance plan on how they advance the purpose of the organization. The other area of key learning is how Emily looks at the results of purpose. Purpose is not a soft word it results in an organization performing much better. She talked about how they measure their sales because of purpose, their recruitment, and their retention. And purpose is seen by her organization as a driver of their high performance and their terrific reputation. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.